All right, now you should say to yourselves, why in the world would this have a date from April on it? Well, that's because things move slowly in the church, okay? But I didn't want to not do this because it's so important, right? So we spent all this time talking about why you should go to church. And there are actually some very, very good reasons for it. They have largely to do not with the reasons that you normally think. They frankly have to do with the reasons of uh, moving from here to heaven in the way of Jesus. So you had the great Thomas Aquinas quote this morning, if you don't know your way, follow Jesus because he's the way. Or Catherine of Siena, all the way to heaven is heaven. How can you say such things, right? You can only say those things if you're in the church and not in the sort of church that most people think about as kind of finger wagon, clicky, gossipy, interested only in themselves and not doing very much good. This is the church after the way of Jesus or Acts 2. Every reading for the past couple of weeks, somebody's getting beat up or stoned or thrown out of town because they're following in the way of Jesus along with Aquinas. So, you know, sort of pay attention. Now, even I can't remember what I said at the beginning of April, so I'm going to go through this very quickly, okay? So here you go. Um, the overriding idea is this that the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments and the Creed say exactly the same thing, okay? So I'm trying to lead you to, although when I reread it, it wasn't as clear as I thought it was. So when you say, thou shalt have no other gods, and our Father, and I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, you've said exactly the same thing three different ways, okay? In the same way, when you say, hallowed be thy name, which is to say, you're holy. That's the same thing as saying, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, which is the same thing as saying, um, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, the Father exposed or revealed in the Son. And also when we beg, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that's precisely what happens in the third commandment of, remember the Sabbath day. Where does the kingdom come? Where is the will done? First at the altar and at the font, and then among the holy people, the sermon this morning, and then out into the world. It's all the same, 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 same. And so you not only say in the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, but at the end you say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church which is either rank idolatry or the truest thing you can say, because after all, as you heard in the sermon, the church is the body of Christ. As Nelson said so clearly, Christ takes a body to take up space in the world. And so this is the way of Jesus. This is the reason you have four gospels, because you're all different and you all hear it differently. So Jesus accommodates you. This is the way, the reason the same cross is applied to you on your skin, because some of you go far away and get tattoos and sneak them home, you know? And some of you can only listen to podcasts, and there's other of you who only care about what you eat. Jesus accommodates you. He humiliates himself. He condescends to come to you in baptism and in Scripture and in the Holy Supper. So this is just another way of saying that you're never alone and you're never unloved. Why go to church? Why wouldn't you go to church? Why would you want to be alone? Why would you want to be alienated? Why would you want to be unloved? Why would you want to be left to your own devices? It's madness. 
And so that's the good of the church, and that's where I want to try to intend to take you. So um, I give you that, of course, you know, number one, and then kind of number two, and I gave you in the past the notion of uh, praying as ab audira, praying is the Latin word for listening, and the Latin word absurdus is, absurd is the word to be deaf. So when you pray, you listen, and when you don't pray, you're deaf. You hear nothing at all. And so in your prayers, especially the Our Father, you get this special bonus of hearing all that Jesus said to his Father, and now the Father looks at you and he says, you too, you are my beloved child. Whatever the Father said to Jesus in the Jordan River, he says to you at your baptism. And the way the Holy Spirit descended there, the Holy Spirit descends on you, and that's the reason the tradition of the church, the font has moving water. When you have a choice, you get baptized in flowing water, right? To remind you that the Holy Spirit is busy. So uh, kind of all that comes in to point number two. I just remind you of things that are said by people much more brilliant than me. Prayer is the breath of the soul. This is point number three, right? This is from a cardinal who goes to jail for 14 years and sneaks his writings out on scraps of paper. Lord Jesus, you are my model. Your existence was one of continuous prayer. You turned toward your Father with a loving heart, and everything was in the service of God's glory. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. This was your sacrifice of love. You, the last paragraph there, you helped me understand that unceasing prayer is communion with the Father. Why pray? Because you and the Heavenly Father are in it together. And of course, if the Father's in it together, then Jesus is in on it. Wherever Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is there too. So it was the first quote from De Salles today where he says, when you make the sign of the cross, you not only confess the Trinity, you confess also the resurrection and your own redemption. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always working to pull you close. So prayer is obedience, but this little bit from N.T. Wright. You know, obedience is, even by Christians, sometimes a reviled word or a word that we try to avoid. Obedience and love are synonyms. Jesus, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? But the opposite side, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Obedience, in fact, arises most naturally, not from an ethic of being, again, the sermon this morning, not from an idea, if you have some good ideas, no. An ethic being forced on us against our will, but from a sense of humility, which comes when we don't know the way, but trust God does, okay? And so this um, great prayer then of, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm trying to get you to pray that as the first bit together. So your Father is holy, he gives you his name, and he's very, very near. Heaven is not far away, heaven is as near as Jesus Christ himself. It's as near as the font, as near as the altar, as near in the scripture. Heaven is here. The great mistake we make, and while we're so perplexed by miracles, is we think about the world as some sort of closed system, and occasionally God intervenes. It is exactly the opposite, which Jesus and his spirit are always here to do the Father's will, and only occasionally do we let him out. So for you, the trick is to let him out. Point four, the glory of Christians lies not in brilliant achievements, 
but in doing of what God wants of them. We may all have the honor of obeying him. All greatness consists in conforming ourselves to God's order. This is what Jesus teaches us. Let us take our part with them and hide ourselves with Christ. This could be a commencement address. As we are hidden with him, it is not the place of exile we should seek his glory. When Christ your life appears, then you too will appear with him in glory. Christ your life is here. Christ is in the water. Christ is on the altar. Christ is in the words. Christ is on your skin. Christ is on your tongue. Christ is in your ears. Christ ever and always with you, begging you to follow along, follow along. Among the things he does is to give you his prayer. Abba, Pater, Daddy, Father, informal, formal, but always for you. The great humiliation of God to send his son, and yet he doesn't give up being maker of heaven and earth. And then this bit that I, you know, I always say to you, this is, you know, if I could have one, if I could just have one thing, it would this be this bit from Nagel on love. Um, you know, I never read it to you, but I tell you to take it home and read it to you. But this is a beautiful, read it to yourself. The motive of Christian action is not force but love. Right? This is such beautiful. Whenever we do merely things because we have to, by compulsion, we're not acting as free sons and daughters. Free sons and daughters live by love. We love our Heavenly Father, so we do what we ask. Do we do what He asks? Right? Love always wins any worthwhile victory. This is the most beautiful thing. Next page. By refusing to be made into an enemy, you've taken love's first step toward victory, right? Only love can overcome sin. When we use force, it is a failure of love. It must be used sometimes, but it is a failure of love. Positive good is the work of love. And so, um, you know, in your own life, we completely rethink how we deal with people who are not just friends, but also enemies. Jesus has no enemies, so I have no enemies. Jesus has no enemies, you may have no enemies. Jesus' enemies are powers and principalities. Jesus' enemies are not flesh and blood. And the proof is that even the people who nailed him to the cross, he prayed for them like they were his own disciples. They're so confused, they have no idea what they're doing. Could you please forgive them? And with forgiveness comes help. So um, I'm only kind of reviewing where we've been, which is why it's you know, taken a bit here and I'm scooching along. Um, I give you then Mary as uh, a great example of that in the Christmas story, that God's uh, kingdom is eternal, and this key thing of the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, his kingdom will have no end, right? Mary says, you know, how does that happen? And she's, the angel says, yeah, hold on, it'll, it'll become much more clear. So you're in this battle where um, Sin and death and the devil are always trying to choke the life out of you. Now, the, the trouble for us is, is that um, the choking strikes us as terribly attractive much of the time. As Dallas Willard you know, once said, um, feelings are great servants but horrible masters. 
And our entire world now, especially American society, is fueled by feelings, right? by pleasure, by indulgence, um, certainly not by reason, and certainly not by virtue. But the call is for you to be different. That's a lonely way. Unless you're willing to come to church and be with other people who are committed to it. And so in the church, it's strikingly important that we're all committed to it. If we're not, there's no point in coming along. We come here so we find our own. Um, Now I'm sorted to where I left you last time. So point number five. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Goes with the first commandment and then with the first article of the creed. Thy kingdom come goes with Jesus. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the forgiveness of sins. As simply as I can say it, the kingdom of God is the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is the rule of forgiveness. Right? The kingdom of God is the cross. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, Jesus. Thy will be done, the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. The Lord's Prayer works by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the balance of the prayer, daily bread, physical resources, forgiveness of sins, spiritual resources, protection from the evil one, let us live long enough to get something done, kingdom power, glory. In the end, the Lord will do it, right? This is a prayer about the Holy Trinity having its way with the earth that they created. And that way is holiness. The work of hallowing us, this is the second point, of having our Lord's kingdom come is given a time and place in the third commandment. Where does God hallow us? Where does he make us holy? Where does he forgive us? Of course, he forgives us many places. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're forgiven. Uh, But there is a particular way that you're forgiven. The pastor will stand up and say, in the stead and by the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you. That just reenacts John 20, where Jesus breathed on them and said, if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you retain sins, they're retained. And the apostles knew they were dying and from time to time would put the next man in place. This is just doing what Jesus asked us to do. So the hallowing comes here in ways it doesn't come any other places. One, you have a pastor working in persona Christi, in persona Christi, which is in the person of Christ. So the pastor speaks to you as Christ. The pastor says the body of Christ and lays the body on your tongue. As Chrysostom says, when the priest holds out the host, it is not the priest who acts, but Jesus himself who gives you his own body. And of course, the same way when you're tattooed in holy baptism. Right? Jesus says to the disciples, you should do this. And so the church makes its living by doing this. These are things that only happen in the church. They don't happen elsewhere. They don't happen without the church. Bousset. The word of God in no way brought either suffering or death into the human world. It finds them there as a certain unavoidable consequence of sin. So God shows up one day in the garden and finds it's all ruined. To Adam and Eve, where are you? Why are you hiding? The typical reaction to sin. We flee and we hide. And we hope it'll go away and it'll never go away. It needs to be dealt with. 
but it gives them the possibility of new meaning. This is what the church does. It gives you the possibility of new meaning. The old meaning didn't work out so well. That's the reason you're here. Let the individual accept in faith the rending detachment made inevitable by its impassioned attachment to itself. Translation, you love yourself too much and you need to take a step back from yourself to its most superficial self and the individual could be given back to love. It could happen to the agape of self-giving, which is a man or woman's only real possibility of becoming not the equal of God, but his living image. You know, all the time people ask, what is the image of God, right? What is the image of God? He created man in his own image. What's the image? For Thomas, for Aquinas, it was rationality, for example. But this is a fabulous answer. What is the image of God? Agape. The self-giving heart of God. The idea that love is never contingent. That you don't look around the room and love the lovable, you look around the room and love the unlovable. Love is never contingent. Love simply loves. Love does, love acts, love creates, love forgives. Love your neighbor as yourself. And God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. The image of God is at least in some measure agopic love. You become his child. The word of God once again has in no way brought suffering and death into the world. Into the world darkened by sin. The world in which it resounds anew. No longer as the creative word but as the redeeming word. The word set free. The word has found suffering and death in the world. Jesus shows up in the world's a mess. Read Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is written as one mess, one emergency after another. Jesus comes with gravitas, with holiness. Everybody else is wild. He sizes up the situation. He identifies the evil. He forgives the sins. And he heals people, body and soul. And then he does it again. That's what God does when he comes to the world. The word has found suffering and death in the world, and these are precisely the only fruits sin can produce. But it makes use of them as seeds, here, all things work together for the good of those who love God, Romans 8. So even your worst mess, even your deepest sins can be put to good use. Not that you do sin, so they, you know, do we sin so grace abounds? No, God finds you, and will repair you and even use the horrible things that you've done to your advantage. At the very least of saying to yourself, I'll never do that again because of where it landed me. It makes them love's way of access to human beings who close themselves to love by closing in on themselves. So under love, under conversion, under the gospel, Love and obedience and freedom do not mean the loss of identity. And I can't tell you, you know, the clever thing that people always, or, I mean, the thing that think people think is clever and they regularly said to me is, this is my true self or this is my true identity. Actually, no. The only identity you have is the identity that God gives you. 
You don't establish your own identity. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. To suggest that you have an identity apart from the divine or apart from your creator is just nonsense. It will eventually play out as nonsense. The trouble is, in between, we're often so blinded by the devil, the world, and our flesh that we don't recognize it until it's much too late. But love and obedience and freedom do not mean a loss of identity, but the discovery of our true identity as children of God. You're a child of God. That's who you are. That's your true identity. Get busy. If you don't know what a child of God is meant to do, uh, you can walk after Jesus. Or you can listen to the epistle today. Don't you know that you're a royal priesthood? You're a priest of the king. What do priests do? They pray and sacrifice. That's what priests do. They go to the temple and they pray and sacrifice. So get busy, pray, Lord's Prayer, and sacrifice. Follow Jesus. Simple stuff. Uh, we aren't up to this, of course. And so you have this remarkable, under point six, you have this remarkable story of Isaiah going up to heaven, which I mean, you just, you know, if you can't see the Holy Supper in this, come to dinner and we'll recreate Babbitt's feast at my table and then you will see. In the year the King Uzziah died, I was taken up to heaven. I saw God face to face. Heaven was filled with smoke, no, incense, it was church. And I said, recognizing that everybody else was there was holy. Woe, I am a man of unclean lips, and I am undone. And then the Lord does what he always does when he sees somebody of unclean lips. He brings them to the altar. So there's an angel who's a bit like an usher who goes over to the altar, and he gets you know, a hot coal with some tongs, and he brings it over to Isaiah to make him feel better, touches him to his lips. You know, the way the body and blood touch your lips. And Isaiah gets holy and you get holy. And then the Lord says, got a lot of work to do here. The world's a mess. Who will go? Isaiah says, here I am, a Kenenny. I'll go. And of course, you'll go too. Go do some good. Follow Aquinas, follow Jesus, follow in the way, follow in love, follow in obedience. Don't hate anybody, don't have any enemies. This is not difficult in theory. In practice, brutal, right? Because it's anti-world. It's Christ and not anti-Christ. So you come to church. Why do you come to church? To be touched by holy things. And so then on the next page, you'll know this. I give you these little things. You know, this is from Nagel again, you know. A good work is a forgiven work. Or it's not a good work until it's a forgiven work. Or the only good work is a forgiven work. You break everything you touch. It doesn't matter if you're a parent, if you're a child. You know, it doesn't matter if you're professional, if you're a student. It doesn't matter who you are. You, you sin with every good work. Good equals forgiven. Equals kingdom of God. Equals thy kingdom come. Equals hallowed be thy name. Equals Christ is here. Equals God is our Father. Equals the Holy Spirit empowers us. Right? This is what's happening to you when you come to church. And so then, um, point seven, the trick is living in holiness right now toward holiness then. 
And maybe you can read the small catechism, at least this bit, with kind of a new eye then. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean? The good and gracious will of God is done indeed without our prayer. But we pray in this petition that it will be done among us also. God's going to have a kingdom and God's going to have a church and God's going to have a great time in heaven with or without me. But we pray in this petition that I'd have admission to. How is this done? When God curbs and destroys every evil counsel and purpose of the devil, the world, our flesh. Classic definition of evil. What tempts us? The devil, the world, my own flesh, right? So the uh, deliver us from evil. When God stops evil. And if you could only see, occasionally when I get to know somebody really well and think they're not too threatened and they also seem to be kind of, you know, seven heavens above me in terms of their spiritual life. I ask them if they've seen angels. And occasionally they will answer. And occasionally the stories are glorious. But you should think the same way about your own life. If you could only see all the times your guardian angel protected you, stopped you from being killed, stopped you from being stupid. If you could only see you know, how your guardian angel waits to take you to heaven when you die. If you could only see how your guardian angel goes with you to the altar today. If you could only see, you'd think about the world in a much different way. That's a way that God curbs and destroys evil, right? When he strengthens us and keeps us steadfast in his word and in faith, that's his good and gracious will. Now, the point, the point from point eight, so you don't think, you know, I'm getting paid twice for the same work. Lo, you will say to me, you did that on the very first week we were here. I'll say to you, you couldn't remember last time we were here. So yes, I'm taking advantage of you here. But the whole point of this thing, it's so beautifully written, is never lose the distinction between what is moral and what is holy. Our whole society, and even the church, many times when it's off its game, allows itself to be pulled into the notion of ethics or the notion of morality, often self-defined. This, of course, is not what Jesus was, is, or asks for. What Jesus wants from us is that we would be holy, not moral. Moral is a human category. Holy is a divine category. If we are just aiming at moral, then we've not embraced our true, there it is, identity. Our divine identity as beloved children of God. We've settled for a false identity. We've settled for idolatry. And I spent, you know, most of one thing trying to explain to you how it's idolatry to define a father and fatherhood from bottom up rather than top down. Right? We spent a whole Sunday on that, especially given all the notion of masculinity and what it is to be a parent, what it is to be a father. Right? We did, how do you know what it is? You want to know what a father is? Read the prodigal son. You'll learn what a father is if you read the prodigal son. Christian morality is more than anything society could ever propose to us. It's something greater than what is found in the writings of any philosopher. It's greater than any moral duty. We are not called to human perfection. We are not called to human perfection. Morality, right? 
We are called to divine perfection, something only God himself can give us. There it is. Why go to church? Because only God can give us this. And where does God give it? He gives it at the altar and the pulpit and the font. That's where he gives it. And of course, as you wander out the door and you're excited about that and you live in love and obedience and forgiveness, of course, he gives it through you as well. But the source is altar, pulpit, and font. And you can't be disconnected from that. You also can't muster it up yourself, nor can I. We are called to divine perfection, something only God himself can give us. And in this divine perfection, we find our highest human perfection as well, right? Grace is gratis, gift, something freely given. But St. Paul is quite clear that this gift calls us to be transformed. The word there in Greek is transfigured, like the transfiguration. So what happens on the mountain of transfiguration is what happens to you when you go to the altar. Transformed and active, a new creation that is brimming with life, soaked with light, right? Full of forgiveness, ready to act. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, right? Everything remains divine in this moral tale. God is the source, God is the end, God is the goal, God is the action. God gives us himself so that we can have the greatest honor ever imaginable to give God to God through his love. So that basically this means then that you live in the image of God, in love, right? In humility, in obedience, as Christ, all the way to heaven is heaven. From top to bottom to head to toe, we're called to be remade in Christ to do all things in him. This is the gift of grace. This is our new vocation. Christianity spreads most effectively in our action. St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. In short, your light is not for you. Right, remember, your light set on a hill. Right, Jesus talks about you, that's how he talks about you. Your light is not for you, but rather it's meant to shine forth for others that we might be instruments of God's own self-gift. The divine life shared by all, even here below. How marvelous a vocation. Love himself, Jesus, gives love to us, forgiveness and all else, so that we might love, live in the image of God, with that love, big L, that can only come from heaven. The world continues to be transformed by the light of this love. I'm turning the page. Thus, as Christians, we have new eyes, a supernatural viewpoint, the God's eye view of everything. This is the mystery of the gift given to us as our life as brothers and sisters of Christ. Brothers and sisters of Christ. This is your family, not the people you live with. And all the things I said about identity, you can now run against the word family. There's one identity, it's your divine identity. God is, you are who God says you are. And there is one family, it's the family that God gives you. Uh, your family is the one that God puts you into. So more than my brothers or my parents, for example, you are my family by virtue of baptism and the Holy Supper. I have the same name as you, and I have the same blood in me as you, and I share the same body as you. So my primary body and blood, my primary family, my primary name is the church. 
that's my primary identity. And of course, it's great if and proper if my parents bring me and my brothers come along and my children too, and we're all in it together, boys and girls. That's the way it's meant to work. So that, that's the pattern we pray for, right? So I, I know I'm clipping, but it's the end of the year, and what am I going to do, right? You have a Heavenly Father. It's the Heavenly Father who loves you and revealed yourself, himself to you by creating you. It's the Father you confess in the creed. You have a brother named Jesus Christ. He was born of the Blessed Virgin Mother, and he comes to bear forgiveness for you and to shape you into his image. Thy kingdom come. And he doesn't leave you alone. He gives you his Holy Spirit that you'd be strong enough to do his will. Right? When they drag you before the kings, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will show up and give you some words to say. So Stephen in the, in the Acts reading today. Huh? It's all going to be okay. And, um, you know, it's interesting. When you're younger, I think this is a bit easier. You're idealistic and strong and would die for a cause. And when you're older, you know, you're worn out and would say, hey, if I, like Polycarp said, when they said, denounce Jesus and you can live, he says, I'm 98 years old and Jesus never did anything to me except good. Why would I denounce him now? Denounce him now? But, you know, you're suffering much more in, you know, 30 to 60, you're suffering much more in there where you care about all kinds of new things like kids and job promotions and where they're going to go to school and what you're going to eat and blah, blah. So we need to work on you, strengthen you kind of from both sides, our young idealistic friends and then old folks who, you know, it's the end of us and so it's the end of us. But you, you know, if you're between 25 and 65, you've got to be in church because you're not going to make it on your own. You're just not, right? You're not. You need the joy group. Think about it. <laughs> and the youth group, think about it. Beekner. Number nine. In the Episcopal order of worship, three dots down under number nine. In the Episcopal order of worship, the priest sometimes introduces the Lord's Prayer with the words, now as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say. The word bold there is worth thinking about. We do well not to pray the prayer lightly. This is the Lord's Prayer. It takes gut to pray it at all. We can pray it in the unthinking and perfunctory way, we usually do, only by disregarding what we are saying. That is the climax in the first half of the prayer. We're asking God to be God. We're asking God to do not what we want, but what God wants. And when you pray it today, don't rush past that. Thy kingdom come, not my kingdom come. Thy will be done, not my will be done. We're asking God to make manifest the holiness, hallowed be your name, that is mostly hidden, to set free in all its terrible splendor the devastating power that is mostly under restraint. Thy kingdom come on earth is what we are saying. And if that were suddenly to happen, what then? What would stand and what would fall? Your great Lenten reflection. The thing to ask before you come to confession. If I lay it all out, what will stand and what will fall? What would be welcomed in and who would be thrown the hell out? Which, if any of our most precious visions of God is, and of what human beings 
R would prove to be more or less on the mark and which would turn out to be phony as $3 bills. Boldness indeed. To speak those words is to invite the tiger out of the cage, to unleash a power that makes atomic power look like a warm breeze. You need to be bold in another way to speak the second half. Give us, forgive us, don't test us, deliver us. It takes guts to face the omnipotence that is God's. It takes perhaps no less to face the impotence that is ours. We can do nothing without God. Why go to church? Because we can do nothing without God. We can have nothing without God. Without God, we are nothing. It is only in the words, our Father, that makes the prayer bearable. If God is indeed something like a father, then as something like children, maybe we can risk approaching him anyway. And then, you know, just to finish it up, we got to go, but um, St. Augustine about what it means to live in the image of Jesus. Jesus prayed as a man and as God with the Father, he heard the prayer. So Jesus prays and hears his own prayer. Even now he prays in us, for us, and is prayed to by us. He prays in us as our high priest. He prays for us as our head. He prayed to be by us as our God. When he was praying as he hung on the cross, he could see and foresee. He could see all his enemies. He could foresee that many of them would become his friends. That is why he was interceding for them all. They were raging, but he was praying. He was hanging from cruel nails, but he did not lose his gentleness. There you go. I love you. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, love you. See you next week. Sorry for the heat. It'll be better, I promise. <laughs>